Welcome to Gateway Community Church, Webster, Texas. We're so glad you found us, and we hope this message helps you discover more about God and His unique plan for your life. And then just the letter A. That's the name she was called in medical journals. And she was already in such bad shape that they got her to a doctor. Um, It seemed almost too late. Her motor skills had been reduced to semi-controlled trembles. Her cheeks were sunken. Her skin looked like it had kind of been draped over her bones. Her pulse was exceptionally low, often dipping down as low as 46 beats per minute. Her respiration was weak. And yet at the same time, she had this nervous energy about her that suggested very high hormone levels. And yet anybody who looked at her clearly thought she was dying. The year was 1866, and the practice of medicine was really just that, practice, because it included things like bloodletting, opium injections, electric shock, and get ready for this, turpentine enemas. Yeah, that's, that's, ugh. Diseases were, in fact, the leading cause of death, but the second leading cause of death was the various trial methods doctors used to try to treat the diseases. Fortunately for Miss A, she had been brought to one of the most unique, committed doctors of her time, Sir William Gull, who valued observation more than trial and error. Uh, He's credited with several major medical breakthroughs, And yet his bedside manner may have been his greatest skill as he showed such great care for his patients. Gull said, we treat people, not diseases. And he was willing to say at times that he didn't know what was wrong and just take time to observe and and think. So whenever he wasn't sure of a diagnosis, he actually often operated more like a nurse, spending time caring for his patient and their situation. Gull oversaw Miss A's case, and uh, amazingly, over two years, he brought her back to health with a range of treatments that that enabled her to regain her strength. After a a fair amount of consideration, he actually came up with a name for the disease that had almost taken Miss A's life. He called it anorexia nervosa. Now, for some of you, that word is very familiar. Some of you may even have or be battling that disease. William Gull, Sir William Gull, discovered one of the most puzzling diseases of the 20th and 21st centuries more than 100 years before it became relatively common. Uh, He he began to help us understand this crippling disease that that didn't have any clinical factors that a medical staff could easily treat. No, nothing that you could easily measure and point to, no no particular test that would say it's this disease or it's this bacteria or whatever the case may be. Anorexia was actually one of the very first psychological diseases that appeared as our world moved into a modern industrialized culture, and it has continued to be one of the most endearing enduring. Uh, Not the result of a virus, not the result of bacteria. Anorexia is, in fact, among a class of diseases that attacks the body by attacking the brain through a very sinister deception that hijacks the mind and, and essentially programs it to destroy the body. It makes sense 
that this disease would actually only begin to appear in the middle part of the 19th century because anorexia is a delusion of the mind, a, a result of new social pressures that have begun to creep into our nation during the 19th century. Just a little bit of background here. Western culture through the 19th century, the 1800s, was becoming more and more industrialized as you go from the beginning of the century to the end. And as that happened, people increasingly were moving from farms into the city and were working in industry. Cities got bigger and, and bigger. And as they increased in size, social norms then became easier to see as you were in a large group of people and as they lived closer together, things like newspapers and magazines became profitable and common. And so for the very first time, you could take an idea and promote it on a huge scale. At the same time, industry was producing more and more products to keep up with increasing demand. Uh, as people were, for the first time, beginning to gain some wealth. There was an, a, a real middle class beginning to emerge in the Western world. And uh, as factories were becoming more effective in producing, they could actually begin to produce more than the demand was calling for. And so they began to look to ways to create needs or wants for their products, to, to expand them and, and create a desire for them. For the very first time, media began pointing not just to needs, but also wants. And in doing that, it began to shape our culture. Now, we kind of take this for granted because all of us have grown up in that setting. But what we're experiencing has been true for less than 200 years. One of the ideals that was promoted uh, beginning in the 19th century was this kind of ideal body image. And corsets came into style as, as fashion took on bigger and bigger significance, especially for a growing middle class. So early in the 19th century, we need to remember that thin was not in. How many of us would like to go back to the beginning of the 19th century? <laughs> Amen. Because the ideal shape for a woman was plump or shapely. Uh, I'm using, I didn't come up with those words. I'm using someone else's words. <laughs> but as the century progressed, the hourglass figure was increasingly emphasized and it was the corset that made that possible in ways that no one could imagine. So here you see an ad, a picture from the 19th century, and it's a very attractive picture and all, but start looking at the size of their waists and, and especially compared to the, young, uh, to the girl, the ladies' waists are actually smaller than the girls. And to highlight that, to get that look, the corset shrank the waist, giving the illusion of fullness everywhere else, uh, but it was largely an optical illusion. To keep up with the Joneses, though, women began drawing the corset tighter and tighter and tighter. And, and over time, a woman could push things around and train her mix, midsection to have huge reductions in her lace, waistline to the point where attractive was anything at or under 20 inches. Now, you think about that for a second. 20 inches for a waistline. Now, that was kind of the beginning point, and 16 to 18 inches was not uncommon for some to achieve so that you get this kind of setting I want you to notice how small that is. 
Many people learn to breathe only through the upper part of their lungs, because, women, because there was, there was nothing down there. It was cinched away and led to mucus filling their lower lungs and persistent coughs. The corset became a hot health topic of that time. It was called the corset controversy. And it was at this kind of period of time, uh, hitting its peak around 1860, that Miss A was growing up. She was a teenager, beginning to figure out how to make sense of the world around her and coming under increasing social pressure. Fashion was becoming more important to her than her health because she felt a fear of not fitting in to the culture. And so increasingly would cinch that corset tighter and tighter. She would look in the mirror and see progress, but it seemed like there was always room for more progress. And so she would tighten it some more. And, and you know, think about it. A thin, thin is really a kind of an abstract ideal. It's, it's hard to define and impossible to have to the, to the degree of it that our minds can think we can. And so at some point, Miss A, living this out, this pursuit for her became an irrational pursuit. It made sense to her, but not to others around her. And I'm very grateful to pastor and author Andy Stanley uh, in a book of his that talks about these insights and points to, to that there really is something about living in modern industrialized culture that tends to transform our thinking from, from what mattered when we farmed day to day just to, to survive. Now, none of us in this room probably has had that kind of experience where we literally farmed for survival. It, 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 and yet it's easier to keep our priorities in perspective when they are focused on survival, when we're just trying to eat, when we're trying to provide something for our kids, when we're just trying to make it from day to day. But as we get richer, our priorities then begin to separate from our actual needs. And when all of our basic needs are met, it doesn't mean that our appetite for progress doesn't stop. Andy Stanley says we simply turn from the things we need to the things we want. And the problem is that wants are harder to define and easier to confuse. Folks, we have over 8 million cases of anorexia in America today. And, and, and that's not surprising because of our culture's huge obsession with appearance and on being super thin. If you look at some of the models that show clothes, some of them... I, don't look like regular people anymore. The human mind is, is so powerful that it can affect our body. I mean, here we are in a time when we can produce more food than any other point in previous history, and yet the number of people voluntarily starving themselves to death is still on the rise. And what's interesting is that those who battle anorexia have actually gotten really good at mastering the thing they're working so hard to achieve. They are good at losing weight. At the same time, they're not so good at knowing when to stop. So that they're so focused on getting thin, on getting there, that they may not recognize when they are there. And this this thinking, this faulty thinking, if you will, occurs so subtly 
that a lot of times we don't even see it happening. We, we go through life and it just seems like the norm to us. It's what we experience. It's all around us. It's all we know. And the problem for us today is that anorexia is not the only area of faulty thinking we struggle with. Our, our culture encourages us to compromise rational thought in other ways. The richer we get as a nation, the more our priorities seem to separate from our needs. As our appetites grow and grow and grow, they never turn off. We, we look in the mirror, but too often we fail to see the truth about ourselves. We see a picture that's been twisted by culture of what we should be, of how we should look, of how we should live, of what we should have. One of the biggest areas of, of this faulty thinking that are derives out of something that has subtly snuck into us is regards our financial resources. Guys, we are rich compared to the rest of the world, and yet too often we don't even think about it or realize it. Think about this. Most people today work a five-day work week, and in a five-day work week, we earn enough to provide food, clothing, shelter, health care, and, and, and perhaps even more for seven days. And often not just for ourselves, but in fact for a family. Now, you and I need to realize that in many cultures today and throughout most of history everywhere, this was inconceivable. This didn't happen. You worked seven days in order to provide food for those seven days. We look back to biblical times, and often Jesus told stories about laborers who literally, if they did not work that day, their family would not eat the next day. Guys, that's still true in our world today. It's all around us. For most Americans today, a job that paid $37,000 a year would be a pay cut. But for 96% of the world's population, that would in fact be an increase. That would be a raise. So if you earn that or more, then you are part of the top 4% of wage earners on earth today. Top 4%. We have problems most of the world would love to have, like bad cell phone coverage, you know, slow internet, car trouble. Uh, it, it struck home to me a few years ago when I went on our Starfish Kenya mission trip, one of the mission trips um, that our, our church does, and I was talking to a, a gentleman there, a young man who who was working at House of Hope, who, who came there for six weeks at a time. This was how he provided for his family who lived in another community uh, 100 or more miles away. He, he would come and work for six weeks, and then he would go back home for two weeks with his pay, and then he would come back. And as I was talking to him, I realized there was no way in the world I was going to talk to him about the fact that I owned a car. It, it would have it been ludicrous or that I have a house that has more than one or two bedrooms. That was unimaginable to him. Or that we actually fed our dogs. I mean, there, there's so many pieces in that that we don't even realize. Now, here, here listen, my, I'm sharing this with you not to make you feel guilty. And, and if you're starting to go that, that direction, stop. What I really want you to do is feel grateful. To feel, you know... Maybe I really am blessed. Maybe 
life is better than I think, than I realize. Because here's the thing, guilt doesn't motivate positive behavior. Great gratitude, a grateful heart does. And I want you to understand how we got to where we are today. And that was the cool thing as I was reading some of the things that Andy Stanley talked about. And, and, and see that this isn't something that just popped up. But the, the truth of the matter is, this is something that all of us have grown up in. It's been so pervasive and so much a part of us that we don't even recognize it anymore. It's sort of like... I heard the story about this fish who was swimming in a stream and he heard some people on the shore talking about water and how good it was and how important it was for survival. And the fish started looking around everywhere for water and asking other fish, have you seen water? Do you know where I can find it? And finally, a wise old fish said, my friend, you are swimming in it. Unfortunately, we swim in our culture and there are good things, but there are also other things that if we have not examined if we have not thought about, if we haven't gotten a lens to see it differently, we may really have a pretty distorted view of reality that doesn't even occur to us because it's all we've ever known. Our goal in this series is to help us see our world, our world more clearly so that we can begin to counter some of this stuff that we've unwittingly bought into and that, that in fact, we are living a wonder-filled life even if we just realize it. Part of the problem is in our culture, we suffer from what was, what's been called Maslow's Dilemma. Now, Abraham Maslow talked about a hierarchy of needs that, that humans experience. It's, it's often been depicted in a, a pyramid, kind of moving from the bottom to the top. We begin with our basic physiological needs like food, clothing, shelter. You can see it right there. Food, clothing, shelter, uh, health care, things like that. We move up to the next level of safety and security. Once we get that taken care of, then social needs, and then when that's taken care of, esteem needs, and then finally self-actualization. And, and the thing to notice is that we're always, we're always seeking more, more in the level we're at or moving up to the next level. We have food, but we want more food. We want better food. We have shelter, but we want more shelter, bigger shelter, better shelter. No matter where we are, the tendency is to always think that what is ahead of me, what's in front of me, what I don't have yet is what I need versus what I have now. And as long as we're headed up the pyramid, our focus then is on what we don't have. And if I'm thinking about what I don't have, I don't pay much attention, I don't think enough, in fact, about what I do have. And only when life turns in some negative direction do we often, in those moments, look back and notice how good we've actually had it all along. Of course, these days, some of us have seen there's some things even more important than those, and so they've added another layer to the pyramid here. I mean, in my household, if the Wi-Fi isn't working, there is, there is trouble. Y'all know what I'm talking about. I wish my wife just wouldn't get so up. No, I'm sorry. My kids. No. Um, you know, we have so much, and and... Yet, it's hard for us to see that because we're all so easily focused on what we don't have. Every ad talks about what I don't have, what I need, 
And, and so I, I think about what I don't have, I think about what others have, and the further I go, the harder it is for me to see clearly. For instance, the more money we have, the smaller the percentage we tend to give away. Folks in the median income bracket here in the U.S., around $50,000, give about 6% of their income to charities. So if median earners do that well, you would expect that folks who make more would be able to give more, even more away, at least the same percentage, maybe even higher, because they have much more working around them. Unfortunately, if you move up to those earning about 200000 giving drops to 4%, and it tends to continue that pattern. The higher one goes, the lower the percentage. The reality is the more we have, the more it affects most of us causing us to become more and more focused on what we don't have versus what we do. We become like Miss A. We, we, don't, we start failing to see reality as it really is because we're looking so hard at an unrealistic goal that the culture around us has convinced us is important, that you need this, that you're missing out somehow, that you deserve this. I mean, how many commercials, how many ads say you deserve What's the basis for that? Can you point to me mathematically? Can you point to me sociologically? Of course not. It's sales. It's marketing. And we start to think we, we deserve it. We ought to have it. But I don't have it. But I want it. I want it more. So-and-so has it. Why does he have it and I don't have it? It's not fair. And before long, I forget what I have. We're in one of the richest countries in the world. Yet too, all too often, all we can see is who has more versus what most have, including myself. The key for us, as the old saying is, is, for, is to possess money without money possessing me. The Apostle Paul who was mentoring a young man named Timothy, warned him about this issue. Christianity, at the time he was writing Timothy now, was a few decades removed from the time of Jesus, touching more and more lives across the known Mediterranean world, including some people who were, in fact, wealthy. And Paul understood that rich people, which, if we were honest, we're rich, rich people faced unique challenges as they began to increasingly embrace this Christian worldview, this Christian culture that was different from the world around him. And so Paul wrote Timothy, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain. See, Paul says money does stuff to us that, that those with less don't deal with their face. The more a person has, the greater the potential it is to affect their thinking, distort their view of reality, and perhaps lose their balance. Now, it's not saying money is wrong. Let me be very clear about that. As someone re came up and reminded me afterwards that Dave Ramsey says, money is amoral. It's not wrong to have a lot or not to have so much. The question is, what do we do with it and how does it influence us? That's the key. So Paul teaches Timothy how to neutralize the effects of money obsession of wealth on the wealthy. He points to two issues with money here in this passage. He says it makes us arrogant over time. 
And at the same time, he says, it can become our primary source of hope, leaving us increasingly feeling like we're self-sufficient. Look what I did. I did this on my own. I can handle it. I, you know, I can pay my way out of this. Wealth always draws us in these directions unless we learn how to compensate. The first being arrogance. And, and arrogance is not fun to be around. I mean, we all have met people who are arrogant. Arrogant means having an inflated sense of self-worth. And unfortunately, as people's net worth goes up, oftentimes they increasingly begin to see themselves as worth more. Too often our self-worth becomes tied to our net worth, and in fact some people seek more in order to raise their self-worth. And all too often these these issues, our identities are defined by our possessions that we start seeing in our childhood years. We start noticing and caring what others are wearing from a very early age. You know, we start seeing, I remember the first time I remembered seeing the little orange tag on the back of the blue jeans. What is that? Because the cool people in my class are wearing those. Oh, those are Levi's. Some of you, I mean, that may seem kind of strange, but for me, that was a big deal. And I got me some Levi's. You know? And inevitably, moms and dads, you know, that as our kids become interested in the right brand, we discover it's usually not one of the cheaper ones. You know, why is that? Maybe we have bought into something unintentionally. It's just around us. It's what people do. It's how it works. And it becomes in the car we drive, the school we attend, you name it. When we have less than others, it's not uncommon for us to, in fact, feel less important than rich people. Some, some, in fact, some who are wealthy start to see themselves as smarter, better looking, or more competent because those are categories that add into a lot of people's self-worth. I'm not saying that's the right thing. I'm saying it does happen. Money can alter how we look at somebody else. If you find out somebody suddenly, you all of a sudden discover they have money, oh, they have money. I want to get to know them. I want to go out with them. Oh, they don't have money. Hmm. Nice to meet you. Check you later, Charlie. You know? I mean, a lot of us guys, didn't we discover there were some some girls who, they didn't go out with us. We didn't drive the right car. I hear some of you laughing. You know, I'm, I'm not blaming. I'm saying, in a sense, it's what we've known. It's what we grow up in. We're immersed in it. Money it can do that. And, and it gets reinforced by those around us. But Paul says money has an even bigger problem. It leads us to migrate our hope towards money itself. If we fall into this trap, then the more we have, the more we place our hope in those riches. Certainly, to some degree, there's a, there's a greater sense of security as we're able to pay bills, to save for the future, and, and e- even have some left over. There's nothing wrong with that. That's a good thing. In fact, it's why we teach classes like Financial Peace by Dave Ramsey and other things like that. Those are good things. Hope often accompanies riches, but placing our hope in riches is different. 
And that's where the Apostle Paul draws an important line. When riches become the basis, even the source of our hope, our thinking has, has begun to get messed up. We've tied into what the culture is saying, and we put ourselves on a very slippery slope that we discover that no matter how much we have, there's always someone who has more, and it's someone that seems to need more, that we want to be there, and somehow all of our problems will go away. Now, for the poor, this is actually pretty easy. They don't have it to put their hope into it. And so it doesn't come up in the same way. Money has proven to them to be a poor source of hope. But Proverbs 18.11 describes this migration of hope this way. The wealth of the rich is their fortified city. They imagine it a wall too high to scale. In other words, rich people, which globally speaking is all of us, face the danger of seeing their money as the source of their safety and security. We think we can write a check, we can swipe a credit card and take care of the problem. And, and some problems we can but before long, we often unintentionally begin to develop, develop this association between, in our minds between hope and money. If I just had more money, if I just had this, my problem would go away. I could take care of it. And that's faulty thinking. Notice that the writer of Proverbs said, imagine. Imagine, he says, a wall too high to scale. In other words, we see it as perhaps this barrier, but that barrier that's supposed to protect us, he says, only exists here in our minds because no amount of money can protect us from everything. Money doesn't keep us from battling cancer. Money doesn't fix every failing relationship. Ironically, MasterCard was right when they said there's some things money can't buy. The reality is there comes a time when money can't buy hope either. And there is no amount of money that can guarantee us hope in every situation. So putting our hope in riches is a dangerous trap. And Jesus knew all about that trap. It is why if you, if you went through and you looked at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four Gospels, Jesus talks more about money and possessions than he does about heaven and hell combined. Much more. Now the proverb concludes it would be better not to be rich to avoid that threat. Proverbs 30, beginning in verse 8, Give me neither poverty nor riches. Give me just enough to satisfy my needs. For if I grow rich, I may deny you and say, Who is the Lord? And this brings us back to the warning Paul gave about the potential of wealth to dislodge the hope we're supposed to have placed in God. The danger of allowing our hope to migrate to riches is we can begin to hoard when rich people start focusing on all the things that can go wrong, then maybe we're less likely to be generous. And since there is no amount of money that can guarantee our safety, it can become a very vicious cycle. Remember we said the more one has, the smaller percentage we tend to give away. And while we said it's good to save, we can certainly cross a line where we put our hope in the savings. Jesus told a parable, Luke chapter 12, about a rich man who was so successful with his crops that he decided to tear down his barns and build bigger ones. But Jesus said, God said to him, you fool, you will die this very night. Then who will get everything you work for? Yes, a person is a fool to store up earthly wealth, but not have a rich relationship with God. It doesn't mean wealth is wrong, but if it is the priority of our lives. If we think saving and putting our hope in our riches is going to gain us security, we're going to discover someday that it is a false hope. 
Because everything we possess is going to be left behind. I have never seen a funeral hearse pulling a U-Haul. But if we realize all that we have, including our lives, are gifts from God, if God didn't create, we wouldn't be here. If God didn't choose for your life to exist, we wouldn't exist. It's all a gift from God to be used for his purposes and we use it for his glory. And as we do that, then we do become rich towards God. And the result is that that we can't and we won't lose that which really and ultimately matters. So let's go back and just look at what Paul said again to Timothy, but let's look at more of it. I just gave you the first part, but there's more to that. He, he says, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to, be, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. Paul is saying, that the way to offset the side effects of this skewed thinking about wealth to, to avoid being arrogant, to, to avoid putting our hope in wealth, is to put our hope in God. And I know folks of all income levels, from people who are homeless to people who are worth millions, who do that, who do put their hope in God. This is not about a rich versus. There are... These are folks who do not get frantic with every movement of the stock market or every, every concern in their job. Their hope remains steady. Unlike Miss A from the 1860s, these folks see the world as, as it really is and do not get then caught up in the hype, the marketing. And the practical way these folks who live out their hope in God is by pursuing a life of generosity. And, and when we talk about generosity, we're not just talking about finances. I know people think, oh, he's talking about money. No, money is only one small part of it. What about generosity with your gifts and talents? What about generosity with your words? Are you a generous person in encouraging others? What about being generous with the gospel to those around us who have not heard it or have not had it sink in? Over the next few weeks, we're going to look at how to live generously. And I think as we do that, we're going to discover more of the hope God actually offers us and and how blessed we actually are now, right here. Jesus said, I came that you might have life and have it abundantly. That's his purpose. And when we put Jesus in that place, at the center of our lives, then some of the things that have grown up around us over these last 200 years that seem so important, so necessary, that it drives us crazy, maybe in fact are nothing more than fabrications of a culture bent on getting us to consume. Consume versus be. For God so loved the world, he loved you that he gave. And nothing and no one can take that from you. And we believe that this hope offers us a wonder full of life. A wonderful life. 
Because it's not about what we have or don't have, but who we have with a capital W. And what we discover is we put him at the center. He is always enough. Always. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are so gracious. You have given us so much, including life itself. None of us would even be here today, Father, apart from your gift of life. And you've given us resources and abilities and friendships and so much more. Father, I pray that we would take a time out and and back up and look and see what really matters and what is it that has built up around us that is proclaimed to matter that maybe doesn't make my life or anyone else's life significantly better. Father, there have been times in my own life I I thought I needed to have this or that much more money or purchase this thing. Like, it was the answer. And sometimes it was fun for a while, but, Father, ultimately I discovered a day or a week or a month later that my life is still the same. It's all about you, Jesus. It's all about you. Oh, to be like you. That's my prayer, my hope. That we can see the world truthfully and live the world fully because your grace is enough. We thank you. We pray this in the name of Jesus. To learn more about us, visit www.gateway-community.org. Welcome to your journey.